to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. Revelation chapter 3. I've never shared a message in eight years from Revelation chapter 3. I've referenced Revelation chapter 3 many times. But earlier this week, as I was getting set and ready to share what I'll be sharing next week, <laughs> just to, Lord, what do you want us to go forward? How do you want us to move forward? Uh, and all the things that I feel that God is really calling us, which is wonderful stuff. I'm I, looking forward to kind of going through what I believe God's going to do, but I felt like the Lord tugging at me and saying, but there's a different message I want you to share to start the year. And it's not from me, like me personally, it's just from the Lord. If you're familiar with Revelation chapter 3, you might notice how many have red letter Bibles. There's not a single black letter in the third chapter. In other words, every single word comes from Jesus Christ himself, who is our pastor, our shepherd, our master, our savior, our teacher, our king. Every single word. Now, that's not to say that the rest of the Bible isn't equal. We know that all scripture is given by inspiration. Every single word in the scriptures is from God. But this is a special part of the Bible because Jesus speaks to seven churches. And collectively... He's speaking to one church, and we don't have time to get into all the other aspects of this. There's the dispensations of different church ages, uh, or different church periods, I should say. There's one church age, but different periods within the age since, since the uh, return of Christ to heaven. But there's also, in this, special counsel to the church and how we should look at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. And so I want to start, and I'm going to read the entire chapter, all 22 verses, so uh, try and stay uh, engaged, and, and we'll just read this together and hear what Jesus is saying. I've, we don't have time to cover all seven churches, but I believe that this is the passage the Lord gave me, the third chapter, three churches, and what He said to these three churches, and really what He's saying to every church on planet Earth in these words, starting in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. You will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall, work, uh, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I've need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with the eye salve which you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we want to hear what the Spirit is saying. Lord, the Spirit is clear. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Jesus, these are your words unflinching, but full of love, grace, and truth. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be soft and tender. And we're hearing them with soft ears, open ears, soft and tender hearts. Lord, that you would do a work among us. You desire to open doors that no man can shut and shut the doors that no man can open. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in us that only you can do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I always know when the Lord wants me to share a message because I don't want to share it. I do. I got this passage, and I said, Lord, I'm very familiar with this passage, but I have a message prepared for this week. He's like, I know, and I, I want you to share that one next week. Whatever Jesus thinks is urgent, you and I should believe is urgent too. Amen? If he thinks it's urgent, it's urgent. And I believe this passage I bet you this past, like I said, I, I've, I've referred to the third chapter many times. I just did a, a, a six-week series on prophecy, which I referred to numerous places in Revelation, as well as Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and other places as well. But this passage, I, I would venture to say, uh, is probably not shared from less than, and, I, and this is probably an easy guess, less than 5% of the time in pulpits in America. Because these words from Jesus are not always the words we want to hear, but just as good parents, they're the words we need to hear. True? Whom he, Jesus said, whom I love, I tell these things. Whom I love, I share these things. And, and I hope that at the end of this, you're encouraged by what he's saying, although we, we need to be convicted by what he's saying. We need to be touched by what he's saying, but ultimately, we not only need to be encouraged and convicted, but transformed by these words. And not just now, but as I, I felt the Lord was telling me, I want this preached the first Sunday of the year because I want this to really resonate throughout 2015, to not forget these things. It's easy to forget these things, but we don't, there's many things that are worth forgetting, but the words of Jesus, we don't want to forget. We're taking notes this morning. I've titled our time in God's Word, His Counsel Unchanged. His Counsel Unchanged. You know, things get in, in, in fashion or in, uh, in life or in uh, all types of, um, you know, whether it's automobile styles and everything, things come and go, don't they? They're fashionable. They have a season. Oh, that's not in style anymore. I don't think afros, really big ones, are ever coming back. That was in the 70s, right? And, and bell-bottoms for men should never come back, right? Those were, uh, you know, I like watching good times, and J.J. can wear those things and stuff like that. But for the, the rest of us, bell-bottoms, if you're a man, will never work. They seem to came back for women at times, and that's okay. But for men, they should never come back. <laughs> Welcome back, Cotter, all that stuff. I mean, there was a time when those worked. Actually, I don't think they worked then. Did you know, some of you wore, wore them? We'd love to see pictures. But, but the things that God says and the things that Jesus say, they never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His wisdom doesn't change. His counsel doesn't change. It was perfect the first time, and it's perfect ever since. We'll look at three things. There's three churches here. It's a very simple outline this morning. I'm just going to change the outline that's in the text. We're going to look at all three churches, but we're going to just reverse the middle church and the third church in the text. If you take a note, the dead church, the distracted church, and the devoted church. There's three churches here. One's dead and doesn't know it. 
One's distracted and is unaware, and one is devoted and completely walking in harmony with the Lord Jesus. Dead church, distracted church, devoted church. We'll start with this uh, dead church, which actually is in the order that's, uh, that's in the text. Jesus addresses this church in Sardis. And again, there's so many things that we can look at. Uh, what does the angel mean? The seven spirits of God, which goes back to the book of Isaiah, and we don't have time to get into all that. This is really an exhortation from the Lord to the heart of the matter of Jesus saying, these are what I am observing. These are the things I'm observing. And these three churches, these are the things I'm observing. These are the things that I commend, and these are the things that must change. Must change. Have to change. This first church, Sardis, this church has works. This church has works. And Jesus is aware of their works. And I don't think there's any doubt that their works were good works and helpful works. That makes sense? And this isn't like stuff that wouldn't benefit people. Uh, these were good and helpful works. People that were actually being served by this church would say, this is fantastic. I've grown, I've gotten this, I've been helped, I was fed, our family couldn't, uh, couldn't put a meal on the table, and the meals ministry came to us. All of these things, these are good works that this church is doing. Jesus is aware of their works. In this church, it has a name. It has a name. People know the name of this church. It's not a no-name church. Everyone in the vicinity knows this church. This is before blogs and websites and billboards, right? And television and internet and all those things. But this church has a name. It has a name that's well known. They have a reputation in the community. And it's a really good reputation. They have a reputation among the church. They have a reputation among the world. And it's sterling. They are known for being alive. There's even churches around the country. You've probably seen them. They have that name. I've seen churches with the name Alive. Alive Church. You know? A lot of pastors sit around and they think, what's the cooler name that we can come up with? Better name. Because brand matters, right? But this church had a name. It was alive. They were known for being alive, that is. Active church, vibrant church, ready church, an able church, lots of ministry areas. If they were here today, they'd no doubt have solid biblical teaching. You say, well, that's that's really solid biblical teaching. Not, no false teaching, no weird stuff, right? No snake charming, any of that kind of stuff you've seen on ABC's 2020, and they try and expose all Christians as weirdos, right? Really solid stuff. Really solid teaching. And perhaps from a teaching perspective and from a preaching perspective, uh, they have a pastor and even assistant pastors that are known as as good as anyone. Teaching the Word of God, expounding the Word of God, uh, hermeneutics, breaking down the Greek, sharing all these things. They say, wow, this is really great biblical teaching, and it's solid. The Apostle Paul would say, all true, all true. Peter would say, all true. The Apostles, all, everyone in agreement. They'd no doubt have fantastic, if, again, if this church was alive today, they'd no doubt have fantastic and moving worship. It feels like you got brought in to the sanctuary of God. You ever been to the worship services where you were just moved? And you say, I'm not even a person that ever, ever sheds a tear, even in a movie, and I was shedding tears. That kind of worship, moving. Maybe an exciting youth group, an innovative children's ministry, and likely some, effect, some very effective outreach ministries, and discipleship. All these things are good. Those are all good things. Nothing wrong with any of these things. And led by the Spirit, those things should bear eternal fruit, shouldn't they? Shouldn't those things all bear eternal fruit? Shouldn't everything the church does have an eternal purpose? Of course. And this all, by the way, this is not an indictment of large churches, just so you know. This, this applies to small churches, medium-sized churches, big churches, our church. It applies to any size church. Jesus makes no qualifiers here. He's speaking to Sardis, which is a real literal church, but it's hitting every church. Any church should listen to this and put it through the same filter. It's not an indictment of large churches. 
I got radically saved at the largest Calvary Chapel in America, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. Close to 20,000 people a week go to Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. I got saved at a large church. I thank the Lord for large churches and how God has used them. Um, when we moved to Charlotte, there wasn't a Calvary Chapel, and I wasn't called to ministry at that time. I had a job just in the, in the business world, and we were looking for a church, and we ended up at Central Church of God, which is one of the largest church of gods in America. And we were there for two years. I grew tremendously under Pastor Loran Livingston and, and the men's group that we got involved with. And then, uh, you know, on, you take a look at like Brooklyn Tabernacle. You ever heard of Brooklyn Tabernacle? Pastor Jim Simbla up in Brooklyn, New York. Do you realize on Tuesday nights, they have two to 3,000 people show up for a prayer service? Two to 3,000 people show up at the Brooklyn Tabernacle for a prayer service. Folks, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. You normally can't get two to three people to show up at a prayer service. We struggle here. We don't have near as many people as the, I know the Lord would have us to see in a prayer service. So I'm, this is large churches, medium churches, small churches. Jesus is speaking to all of them and saying, regardless of what everyone else sees, this is what I see. And that's really what it will come down to, isn't it, folks? Regardless of what everyone else sees, it comes down to what Jesus sees. The size of a church, what's going on, the activity, all the ministries, happy people, great fellowship, ministries, none of that determines whether a church is alive. In and of themselves, those things don't determine it. Guess what? Jesus determines it. Jesus determines if any specific church is alive or dead. And guess what? Jesus determines if an individual is alive or dead. In this church, Sardis, he says of Sardis, you have a name. Your name is alive. If people would say, you ask everyone on the street of Sardis, hey, what do you know about the church at Sardis? Oh, that church is so alive. It, it makes all the other churches seem dead. But this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. The Greek word nekros, nekros, where we get the word necromancy, which is uh, obviously something that's uh, very, very much an abomination to the Lord. But uh, nekros, one that has breathed his last, it also means lifeless. What, what an irony. The church was known as being alive, and Jesus said, no, no, your name should be lifeless. What a conundrum. Your name is alive, and Jesus said, but your name should be lifeless. Well, Jesus, are you not aware of all that we're doing? Oh, yes. I want you to strengthen the things remain. Some of them are pure. Most of them are ready to die. I've not found your works perfect for God. And Jesus said, I want you to repent. I want you to repent. I want you to repent of what has happened in this church. And they would be, some people would truly be, maybe new believers would be like, what could he possibly be pointing out? What could it be that we're now dead? What could it possibly be? See, the Holy Spirit, the life of the Holy Spirit was no longer in this church. But operational, when I was in business, we used to talk about operational efficiency. Those of you that are in Six Sigma and, and uh, you know, better supply chain management and all those things. I mean, that's what the way the business world, Jesus says, my church is not a business. Remember when Jesus came in and found the temple like a marketplace? How did he react on both occasions? He tore the place up, didn't he? He said, my house is a house of prayer. You've tried to make it an institution. And he said, that is not my church. It is not an institution. It is not a corporation. It is not a CEO and board of directors. Well, we're really efficient, and people are really being ministered to, and all these things. Jesus said, all fine, dead. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, and he meant it, didn't he? He meant it. He said, apart from me, you can't do anything. Well, yes, we can. We can do a lot of things. Jesus said, well, you can do them, but they're still dead works. You can do them. But here's the crux of the problem that Jesus points out, if, especially for a new believer saying, well, I got saved at Sardis. 
So this must be alive and all these things. And here's Jesus points out where the issue is. You have a name. Did you catch it? You have a name. What was the issue with Tower of Babel? Let us make a name for ourselves. God spread humanity all over planet Earth, confused their language because they determined they would make a name for themselves. And any time we work on our name instead of magnifying his name, we've got a major problem, don't we? That's what happened in Sardis. Yes, there were people there that still were doing the work of the Lord, but to their own glory. You have a name. They had unwittingly pursued their own name, their own success, their own reputation, and they misused, here's the point, they misused Christ's name in the process. They misused his name and his sacrifice. And they weren't the first church to do this. They're by no means the last to do it. And I'm sure at times we've fallen into this. Amen? We're all guilty of these things. Individually, there are times when you are, and me, we're working on our own name and reputation instead of remembering that we're taking the name of Jesus everywhere we go. True? We're looking out for, how how does everyone think I look? Are they impressed with me? My abilities, my skills, what we've accomplished, what we've acquired. A.W. Tozer said, promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ is currently so common as to excite little notice. Promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ. It's happening a lot. It was happening in Sardis. And folks, it can happen here unless we stay true to the name of Jesus. It's alarming and shocking that so many people in a church like Sardis that could almost all be wrong and walking in a lifeless condition and not even know it. Jesus said, you're a corpse. You know, Jesus is a, is a good father, but he doesn't mince words, does he? <laughs> you come into the study with Jesus, he's going to tell you how much he loves you, but he's going to give it to you straight. Right now, pastor of Sardis, elders of Sardis, deacons of Sardis, you guys are a corpse. Why? Because you're in love with your own name. You love your name. Your name means everything to you. You want everyone to notice your logo in town. You want everyone to say, your church is fantastic. You want everyone to say these things, and because of that, you love yourself, but you don't love me. We may think, well, it's a good thing Jesus is just speaking to Sardis. Good thing it's, it's, it's addressed to Sardis. It says Sardis. Good thing he's only speaking to Sardis. And beyond that, good thing he's not speaking to Calvary Chapel of Richmond. And beyond that, good thing he's not speaking to me personally because it's addressed to a church, not an individual. Look a little deeper. He's talking to both. Because he says, there are a few names in Sardis, a few who have not defiled my garment. There's a few that still are not trying to magnify the church of Sardis, they're trying to magnify me. And by the way, whenever there's more to this, we don't have time to dig into it all, but the defilement of the garments tells me that other sin was now coming into the church too. Wherever pride comes in, we're in love with our name, we're in love with our ministry, we have the greatest children's ministry on planet Earth, the rest of you churches don't know what you're doing. Right? Whenever we really stick out our chest and say, there's a lot of churches in Chesterfield County, but we, we know what we're doing. The rest of them, pfft, they don't have all this stuff. Other sin comes in. Other defilement comes in. Wherever pride is, other things will come in. But Jesus is saying, repent of these things. Repent. Confess. Get these things right. You know, we can fool people individually, because he's speaking to individuals too. We can fool people, can't we? We can fool people by our activity. You ever been doing something for God and everyone sees that smile you clicked on? But underneath, you are complaining. You're not happy. You don't even want to be there. You're rather ticked off and you 
hope that it doesn't come out. You weren't in prayer. You weren't in the Word. Not even really walking with the Lord, but you have a reputation to uphold, right? So you must keep it together. And Jesus knows. He's still, now he's so gracious with us. We've all had these times, right? Trust me, everyone's had it. Apostle Paul had these times. Everyone but Jesus had these times. Everyone understands that, right? Jesus is the only one that never had to fake it. Isn't that great? Jesus is the only person ever on planet Earth that didn't have to fake it even one time. He actually meant it when he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. You and I would say that, and we would not mean that. We wouldn't mean that. But he meant it. There's times when we're complaining and cynical, and Jesus is still patient with us, says, you're complaining and cynical right now. And the problem is, you're looking out for yourself instead of trying to glorify me. Get on your knees and get it right. He's speaking to all of us. Jesus knows the real condition of Sardis. He knows our real condition. Let's look at the lukewarm church that I'll call the distracted church. This church in Laodicea, starting in verse 14. Jesus says, I, I know your works. Well, look at, by the way, look at what he calls himself. He's called the amen, meaning full agreement, the faithful and true witness. In other words, as if there's many other witnesses that aren't faithful and not true, Jesus says, other people will flatter you and tell you what you want to hear to your own destruction. Jesus says, I will not do that. I will not flatter you to your own destruction. Satan flatters people to their own destruction. Satan comes to a person that has not yet been saved and says to them, you're a good person. Right? You're a good person. Remember what you did at the United Way campaign last year? Right? You led it. You, remember, you're a good person. You've never, you've never done anything bad to your grandmother. You're a good person. You never cheat on your taxes. You're a good person. You do all these things. And so Satan flatters people, but Jesus doesn't. In love, he said, no, no. I see it all. I'm the faithful and true witness. I'm the beginning of all of creation. I'm the very reason your breath is working, your heart's working, your lungs are working. I created you. I created the universe. And this is what I see. I know your works. You're not cold. You're not hot. You're good old average in the middle. You have a good, healthy balance. Well, at least in the mindset of the Laodiceans, it was a good, healthy balance. Jesus said, you're lukewarm. You're not a hot cup of coffee, and you're not a cold glass of milk. You're something that's been sitting there on the counter for the last four hours. Does anyone really like to drink that? Do you want the glass of milk that sat there for four hours outside the fridge? Do you want the cup of coffee that sat there all day long and it's separated? Now you can even see how many ingredients were actually in the Starbucks coffee because they've separated? No. Jesus said, these are the things that I see. Lukewarmness. You believe yourself to be rich, wealthy, not needing anything. You feel like, man, you've got it all. But you're wretched, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Jesus describes here a church that has convinced themselves, this church is not the dead church, it's the distracted church. They've convinced themselves they're not actually doing a ton of works and activity that's actually the noble things that Sardis is doing, albeit Sardis is doing it for their name. This church is kicking back. This church, if they could transfer sandals to their place of residence, they would. See all these commercials now, right after Christmas? Immediately after people, I was telling my wife, I said, this is weird. I mean, as soon as, the, as soon as Christmas is over, people have just gotten all these Christmas presents. They got some downtime. And here comes Carnival Cruise Line, sandals, and the rest of them saying, you guys need a break. You guys have really, you guys haven't had anything to yourself lately. And I'm like, what, what was Christmas morning about? Right? The enemy's always pulling at us. Be careful of these things. This church has convinced themselves they're okay with God. They're okay with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, your priorities and your overall condition, not okay. The folks in this church, they have busy lives to live. And the Laodiceans, they're like, we got a lot to do. 
We've got, we got lives to live. And although Christ is part of their lives, he is part of their lives, it's limited, very limited. They've given Jesus a small box to live in of their life. The Great Commission, Jesus' last words on planet Earth before ascending to heaven was to bring the gospel to a lost and dying world and to go and make disciples. But what they're doing, they're investing their God-given. Remember, everything you have, everything I have, everything, every single thing that you or I have, our time, our talent, and treasure all belongs to God. He can take it back in a New York minute or a millisecond if he wants to. True? It all belongs to him. But what they were doing with their God-given time, talent, and treasure, instead of making disciples, those things took a backseat to making themselves as comfortable as they possibly could be. That was their goal, to be as comfortable as they could possibly be. They were rich. They didn't need anything. They had everything together. They were masters of their own domain. They're of the same spirit that's mentioned in James 4.13, where James says of, of a group of people that he's writing to, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Just very presumptuous. We do what we want to do. Our calendar belongs to us. Everything we do, uh, the things of this world, for Laodiceans, the things of the world drive their priorities in their calendar. The things of the world drive their calendar, drive their priorities, drive the important things in their life. Now James goes on to say, much like uh, Jesus says here in Revelation 3, James goes on to say this in the fifth chapter, first and fifth verse. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be against you. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. That's pretty heavy stuff from James too, isn't it? Same things Jesus is saying. Wretched, poor, naked, and blind. And yet, in both cases, the pursuits were all, well, we, we've pursued pleasure, we've pursued these things, and we've actually attained them and acquired them. We're kicking back. The same spirit is mentioned by the prophet Haggai, and Haggai 1.4, he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the temple lies in ruins? Which is God asking a redundant question. Should you be living all to yourself, and God said, the temple's in ruins. The Great Commission's in ruins. People are in ruins. People are dying around you in ruins. We never seem to know that people that are around us that actually look, well, they, they look like they're having a good time. How do you know? You're not inside their four walls, are we? And we find out that there's tragedy. There's all kinds of things. But they don't have the words of eternal life. We do. The priorities of leisure lifestyle have become the de facto gods of the Laodicean. No, they weren't worshiping. So the Laodiceans, they would say, well, we don't bow down to idols. We, don't, we haven't fashioned any idols. We used to do that stuff. We used to do those things. We used to bow down to idols. We don't do that stuff anymore. We just hang out. And Jesus said, no, no, no. The things that now you've acquired, they've become de facto gods. If the Laodicean church was in modern America... This is how things might go for them. They would likely find plenty of time to go to the movies. They'd find lots of time to work on hobbies. They perhaps would never, and I mean never, miss a certain TV show. They would maybe redo the home furnishings every couple of years. They'd read lots of books, magazines, articles, download a million things on their Kindle, maybe run a few marathons, get away for a weekend as often as they possibly could, but they'd still be regulars at church. Now, that's what G, that's, this is the lifestyle. Remember, they pursued a leisure lifestyle, comfortable as they possibly could be. The Great Commission, leave that to Sardis. Leave that to Philadelphia. We'll send y'all um, we'll a ministry check to help out. Right? We'll write a ministry check to help out. But we're hanging out here in Laodicea where they actually had hot springs and all kinds. They actually really did have these things. So we're, that's what we're doing. They may never find the time or self-sacrifice to witness, invite a neighbor to church, serve in a ministry, disciple someone, go on a short-term mission trip, go visit a prison, go visit orphans, the elderly, people in hospitals. But 
they have an iPod full of Christian music, and they might even attend three or four Christian concerts this year. Right? Now, I'm not saying these things because those things are wrong. I have that stuff on my devices. I like to go to a concert. What I'm saying, if the fabric of the entire Christian life has become nothing but self-centered, sitting down to a feast, always a feast to ourselves, Jesus says, you've become blind, completely blind. Is that what Jesus did in his earthly ministry? No. He was reaching out to lepers and people dying and prisoners and constantly giving of himself, pouring out, even to the point where he finally gets to the garden, he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood because he was intensely focused on bringing life to people who otherwise would die forever and spend eternity in hell. In 1985, true story, in New Orleans, there was an end-of-year party held at the city pool to celebrate the fact that nobody had drowned that summer. It was the first summer, in fact, in 1985, at that city park in New Orleans, it was the first summer in memory without a drowning. Big deal. They didn't have one drowning that summer. And the party and the celebration was uh, attended by more than 200 people. 100 of which were certified lifeguards. And as they were cleaning up after the party, they saw that a fully dressed man was dead at the bottom of the pool. He wasn't one of the lifeguards that attended the party. You see, sometime during the celebration, he had fallen in. Not one person saw him fall in. Nobody saw him fall in. Nobody tried to rescue him. No one even noticed Four of the lifeguards were on duty, but the other 96 were all there. No one noticed until it was too late. The sad and tragic irony of a group of lifeguards celebrating the fact that no one had drowned while someone was drowning. See, their vigilance, it was replaced by a feeling that everything was fine. We don't have to be on guard. Their names were lifeguards. I don't know about you, but I want police officers to be vigilant even when they're not on duty. Right? Jesus wants Christians to be vigilant all the time, to not forget that, no, you're not laying up treasures here. You're laying up treasures where? In heaven, where moth and rust don't corrupt. Jesus is saying, you're acquiring all those things. Meanwhile, people are dropping to the bottom of the pool around you, but you won't know until it's time for the cleanup, until Jesus comes and says, now it's over. And what about the church? Jesus notices, notes that the Laodiceans, they were materially, materialistically speaking, they were doing fantastic. They were obsessed with possessions. They were obsessed with leisure. They were obsessed with attaining, acquiring, and ultimately, it was idolatry. Though they didn't see themselves that way. They didn't see themselves that way. They, thought, they saw themselves as having a good, well-balanced life, uh, a good, well-balanced life of prosperity, pleasure, family, and a healthy dose of Jesus, but not too much, because too much Jesus is fanatical, right? They didn't want that. And they were still attending church, but notice Jesus' counsel and indictment. He calls it lukewarm. And you would say, well, then lukewarm's not that big a deal. Well, Jesus said he'll vomit them out of his mouth. I got saved when Pastor Bob Coy and Calvary Laura taught from this chapter, and it was that, that verse. I, you know, later this year, I'm going to retell my testimony in a separate message. The Lord's laid on my heart. I don't know when. It's going to be at least three or four months out, but uh, I'll be a Sunday where I'm going to reshare and the context of why our testimonies really matter. But that morning when I got saved, I was an unsaved person, and this passage lit a fire under my feet that the Lord said, if that is what I'm speaking to lukewarm, and I was not lukewarm, I was ice cold, I was pretty sure that it was time to repent. And, and it, I, I didn't repent out of fear that day. I repented out of, Lord, have mercy upon me. And even to this day, as a believer and now as a pastor, I still need to be reminded of these things. You still need to be reminded of these things. 
Every other pastor still needs to be reminded of these things. John, who wrote it, would need to be reminded of these things. None of us are above forgetting why we're here in the first place. And all of a sudden, we're either dead or distracted. Leonard Ravenhill said, I believe every church is either supernatural or superficial. I don't believe there's any middle ground. It's true of Christians, too. True of us individually. Every church, supernatural or superficial. Every Christian, supernatural or superficial. And sometimes we've been superficial, and Jesus says, it's high time we come out of the superficial into the supernatural. That's what Jesus is saying to us individually and personally. He goes on, Leonard Ravenhill went on to say, our blessings have become a curse. They attract us. They take much of our time and concern. The very things that God gave us, blessings, and we love, we have a house before I left business, we built out the third floor of our house so we could host missionaries and stuff, which is a blessing. But really, if the things that God gives us become all that consume us, they have become our de facto gods. And that's what happened with Laodicea. And the last point of Laodicea, look where Jesus is. Verse 20. A lot of times you'll hear this verse referenced as a verse of, of salvation. And th- you can make that application, but the most direct application is that Jesus, look at it, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Where is Jesus related to this church? Outside. They actually will have a service, maybe praise music to Jesus, and the whole time Jesus is looking inside the church from outside the church saying, y'all going to invite me in? Can I come in and worship with you? Because if I come in and worship with you, guess what? I take over the worship because I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, I'm your master, I'm your shepherd. But if you don't want me, well, there's a big problem there because he says, as he said to uh, the dead church, I'll confess your name. I won't blot your name out. Jesus said, if you, if you want to be my disciple, you have to follow me exactly how I tell you. We're not masters of our domain. He is our master. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. These other things, they'll fade. You know, All the stuff that we acquire, it can be gone in a minute. But Jesus says, my words will last forever. My call upon your life. This is what I want you to focus on. I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put these other idolatrous things away. Those things that are taking and robbing your love for me. I'm going to close with the faithful church, though. This devoted church, if you're taking notes. The devoted church. Each of these churches is devoted to something. Sardis was devoted to their name and their reputation, and their ministry success. Laodicea was devoted to the good life, possessions, pleasures. Their true love was no longer Christ, either of those churches. Their true love had been replaced by a different affection. But the church of Philadelphia, they were holding strong. They were devoted to loving and serving Christ and bringing glory to his name. And the words of Jesus here, they tell us a lot about their focus. Look with me uh, at the text, verses 7 through 13. Um, notice in verse 8, he says, for you have a little strength. We'll come back to that in just a second. You have a little strength, and you have kept what? My word, and you have not denied my name. Verse 10, you have kept my command. Verse 12, and I will make him a pillar and temple of my God. I'll write on him my God in the city of my God, and down out of heaven comes New Jerusalem, my God, and I'll write on him, my new name. Do you notice how many times Jesus says, my name, my God, my name, my God, my, 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 in a good way. He's saying, this church loves my name. This church lives for my name. This church magnifies my name. And guess what? Through all that, he says, they only have a little strength. They don't have much. They don't have much to offer. They don't even have the great reputation, little strength. But they were in love with the word of God. They were in love with the name of God. 
They were in love with the commandments of God, verse 10. What was Jesus' primary command? This church was in love with that command. Go and share the gospel with every living creature. Go make disciples. They were in love with that command. They believed that that was their calling. They could work hard and make a lot of money and stuff like the Laodiceans, but they rejected that. They could focus on their own name like Sardis, but they rejected that. Even though they would have the same temptations as Sardis and Laodicea, there is no temptation taken, you or me, but such is common to man. Everyone has the temptation to be distracted. Everyone has the temptation to be dead and focus on their own name. But this church decided it's going to cost us something, but let's stay true to Jesus. And they did. And he said... Uh, you have you've kept my command to persevere. The church of Philadelphia, they were devoted to loving and serving Christ. They didn't lose their focus. They knew that perseverance wasn't going to be easy, and they knew they didn't bring much to the table. And guess what? We don't bring much to the table either. In fact, we bring nothing to the table. I didn't choose to be born in 1969. I didn't choose the way I look. I didn't choose any gifts or talents, and I don't have many, that God gave me anyway. Or you. We only bring dust and ash and say, Lord, use, breathe life into this. That's, what's, that's what Philadelphia believed. They believed that Jesus could breathe life into them. D.L. Moody, who was used in a great way, he said, God doesn't seek for golden vessels. He doesn't ask for silver ones, but he must have clean ones has to have clean ones. All they were focused on was their relationship remained pure with the Lord. And they leave the results up to God. I don't know what God's going to do with me personally, with you, with this church. That's up to Jesus. I can put anything down I want on paper and Jesus says, roll that up, throw it in the trash can. I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. Are we okay with that? Philadelphia was okay with that. They were okay to saying, you want us to persevere? That's what we'll do. You want us to focus on your word and your name? That's what we'll do. You want us to focus on telling people about you? That's what we'll do. But what God does with it is an eternal work, eternal fruit. We talked about it at the beginning. They were a little church with a little bit of strength, and they, they knew apart from Jesus. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. They knew that, and more than that, they believed that. See, a lot of times we don't believe that. We believe we can do something. And I, I'm guilty of doing things in my own strength, aren't you? Where I just do certain things in my own strength. And then I realize, now I know why I'm stressed about this. I was doing it out of my own strength. Just take a little strength, anointed by the Holy Spirit. Don't have to have much. I'm not that talented. I don't have this. I don't have that. We don't have all the resources. We've got spots on the wall today or whatever else. All these things. Jesus says, none of that stuff matters. A little strength. Zechariah 4.10, for who has despised the day of small things? Who's despised? The only people that despise small things are people that have grandiose visions of themselves. But Jesus said, I don't want your vision. I want mine. Wasn't it God who took five little stones? Wasn't it God who took a few fish and loaves? Wasn't it God that took a tiny little nation full of former slaves? And they would become the tribes in which the Messiah would come. They would become, they'd build the temple. All of these things. Philadelphia, they weren't much. They didn't have much. But they were saved. That's a lot, isn't it? You may say that again, but they were saved. What else can you buy? You can't buy salvation with your 401k. You can't buy it by you know, any of the things that the world can attain and inquire. They were saved, and look at what else they were. Look at verse 9, the end of verse 9. Jesus said, someday, those that mock you, the synagogue of Satan, he calls them. He's talking about people that are actually religious that think you guys are wacko. Call them the synagogue of Satan. He said, they think you've lost your marbles because you follow me and you've taken up your cross and follow me and they think you're all in, you're too much, you guys take this whole Jesus thing too serious, 
You guys really think you're supposed to tell people about him? You really think stu- studying the Bible is going to you know, enhance your life, whatever? Jesus said, this, this group, someday they'll worship at your feet, but they will know that I've loved you. See, we're always seeking love in all the wrong places. Jesus says, come to me. Let me love on you. That company that you've sold all of your, man, I've worked hard. Guess what? As soon as they're about to do a layoff, they won't care one bit all that you did for them. Do you believe that? They, they will not lose a wink of sleep when they say, how many people are going to lay off? A thousand. Cut them. While the executive somehow still gets a magical $4 million bonus. I was in the business world. I saw this stuff. I saw it firsthand. I'm not making this stuff up, folks. I saw it clearly. Jesus would never treat his children like that, ever. And Jesus says, why are you, why are you trying to get the love, attention, attraction of a world that doesn't even like you, but will flatter you to make sure that you do what they want you to do? It's bondage. Children of Israel are called out of what? bondage. Freedom is knowing that you don't have to try and keep up with anyone anymore. That you can be at peace with God in any situation. Storms, difficulties, you can still persevere. The church of Philadelphia, they said, yes, Lord, we will persevere. And persevering is not easy, is it? It's not easy to persevere. They were clinging to Christ, but more importantly, Christ was clinging to them. They were clinging to him, but he was clinging to them. Remember Jesus in the parable of wise and foolish virgins? One group of virgins kept the oil full. Folks, you and I have to keep the oil full. We have to stay drenched in the Holy Spirit. We have to stay in the Word of God. We have to, when we feel dry and down, we feel attracted to all the things that, well, I just read a magazine, and I was on Pinterest, and it looks like I, need, looks like I don't have half the things I need. I don't have a Pinterest account. My wife does. And I look at these perfect human beings that are on there, and I'm like, who has time to do that? Who takes a graham cracker and does that? You know, or whatever it is. I'm convinced it's just a company now. It's somewhere just like coming up with ideas and acting like they're an individual or something. Nobody lives that way. And... It's just that the enemy tries to trap and say, you need all this other stuff. And Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and are what? Heavy laden. Heavy laden. The church of Philadelphia, their eyes were fixed on Christ. They were, by the Spirit of God, they were committed to persevering. They knew that they had to rely on Christ to get past their own flesh. My flesh is pretty strong. I'm sure yours is too. They had to rely on Christ to get past their own flesh. The constant temptations. We all have the same temptations. We all have the desire to just chill out forever. I would love to sit on the beaches of Tahiti from now until Jesus came back, but I know I'm not allowed to do that. It looks attractive, but I know that the Lord will not be pleased with that decision. The sadness... There's sadness in life that draws people away from Christ. There's apathy in life that draws people away from Christ. There's times when we're weak and there's times when we're tired. There's sickness and pain that draws us away from Christ. A death in the family, all these things, tragedy. There's times of being misunderstood. Someone stepped on my toes. Someone said something about me that wasn't true. We were the victim of gossip. All of these things, being rejected, slandered, ignored. Jesus, he addresses all of them in the scripture. And all of them, you could put your eyes back on Jesus, looking to him, the author and finisher of our faith, saying, your Lord, none of those things will move me. Paul said, none of these things move me. And Jesus, to all three churches, all three churches, he speaks to them and bids them to come back. But notice, he talks about he who overcomes. And in the 21st verse, says, he who overcomes, I will grant. The Lord wants us to be overcomers. The church of Philadelphia, they were walking through doors that Jesus opened, and he was shutting doors that no one else could open. Isn't that cool? Do you want to open doors that no one on planet Earth can open, and actually the doors that you need sealed, God seals them shut? Jesus says, if you follow me, take up your cross, follow me, stay close to me, stay with me, 
I'll do it. I'll do these things. I want to close with um, just, oh, it's down here. This is from, uh, any of you guys familiar with K.P. O'Hannon? This is chapter 16 of his book, Living in the Light of Eternity. And um, as you know, those of you who know who Brother K.P. is, he got saved there in India. And, you know, today, uh, through Gospel Phrasia, they're planting, I don't remember how many churches per day they're planting. It's, it's amazing. But he says this, he says, I tra- as I travel around North America speaking in churches and home groups, I have learned that it is valuable to close my message with a time of questions and answers. I'm not doing that this morning. We don't have time. Not only does my audience have a chance to ask questions or share what is on their hearts, but I am provided with a wealth of information on the state of the church at large. On one such occasion in California, a young man stood up to ask a question. He was a university student searching for answers. I just finished reading your book, Road to Reality, he said. You say some hard things in that book. What I want to know is, how can I live out the principles that you talk about? I find it pretty hard to walk away from the comfortable life I am so accustomed to living. Can you help me? As I spoke, I was already praying, Lord, give me some way to answer this young man. Your questions, uh, he says, I told him, your questions tell me something about you. You're troubled. You desperately want to do the right thing. You don't know what to do with this message or how to apply it to you. You know Jesus is asking you to sell out for him, but you're looking for some emotional confirmation, some happiness to support your thinking, but you aren't finding any, are you? That's what Kate said. You're not finding any, are you? There was absolute silence in the auditorium. I realized that this young student was really the spokesperson that day for many others facing the same struggle. You may be facing this struggle too. How will you apply the guidelines we have talked about? Now, you have to read, the whole book is fantastic, and you read it if you uh, go to GFA and you can buy it. But I think that I want to close with what KP pointed out. This young man's asking a question. Say, I want to I live for Jesus. I want to be all in for him, but I'm having a really hard time. And I believe it comes down to a couple of things as a believer. One, the biggest one to me, is you have to trust God. You have to trust God. You have to believe that Jesus is the true and faithful witness. You have to believe that Jesus tells the truth always, but all the marketing agencies, all the entertainment, all of our friends and neighbors, all of our coworkers, they aren't God. They're very flawed. They're not always lying. They're trying. Jesus doesn't try. He is. There's a big difference. You have to trust God. You have to believe that his way is the only way, period, not only the only way to heaven, but the only way to peace on earth and your heart. Two, you have to have thankfulness. You have to be thankful for salvation. You have to remind yourself constantly, I've been saved by grace. I've been saved by grace. I've been saved from an eternity in hell unto eternal life. You have to have thankfulness. Number three, you must have the hope of heaven. You have to have your eyes fixed that this world is not my home. Just settle that in your heart. Chesterfield County is not my home. Some of you say, well, that, I can deal with that because there's plenty of places I'd rather... No, I, I like Chesterfield. I'm not saying anything bad about Chesterfield. But the point is that Jesus, this era, you're not home. You're a pilgrim passing through. And then in Romans 12, 1, you determine to lay your down in your life daily as a living sacrifice. Daily as a living sacrifice. That you lay your life down daily. And I'll close with Isaiah 55, verses 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what uh, the prophet says. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk with... And, uh, Milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in abundance. Incline your ear, come to me, hear, and your soul shall live. Do we trust God? 
Do we trust Jesus that everything he said is true, that he's faithful, he's true, that is what he said in Isaiah, and what he said in Haggai, and what he said in James, and what he said in Revelation, we can count on it and say, Lord, all those other things won't ever bring satisfaction anyway, and they certainly will bring destruction. I pray that you individually and us as a church, we resolve to be devoted unto Jesus Christ. Amen?